pray, Lord, as we open here in Philippians chapter 4 this morning, Lord, I pray that You would guide and You would direct our hearts. God, convict where conviction needs to come, encourage where encouragement needs to come. And Father, in all things, may You be exalted. God, help us to stand firm and help us even to seek unity as a, as a church family. We just give this next hour to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in our small groups, this past year we've been uh, studying the Bible, which is always a, a good thing to do. Um, but rather than studying um, like some text that's been taught or some sermon that's been taught, what we've been doing is we have been going through what will be taught on Sunday mornings. So I know that several small groups... Um, last week, I know, Phil, like on Friday, you guys looked at my text, Philippians 4, 1 through 3. Yeah, and I know we did that at our small group uh, this past Sunday. Darren, did you guys meet this pastor? You didn't? Okay, but you did, but you didn't look at this text. Okay, that's okay. Uh, but in general, we've been looking forward to text rather than responding to what was preached. And, and our aim is really to help you all start really thinking for yourselves of just how to approach the Scriptures. Rather than re- responding to everything, we want you to begin anticipating things to come. Um, after all, also if I'm preaching what the Bible says, you ought to be able to have with some degree of accuracy a, a good idea of maybe the themes or the the major points which I'm going to hit. In fact, sometimes even you should be able to pick out my outline beforehand or at least be close or understand how things divide themselves. And another aim of this is to give you all a way to approach Scripture yourself because you do need to do this. The Bible is not on the book of banned books at Rock Valley Bible Church. No, it's on the top of the list. We want you to, to read it and study it for yourself. You want to, we want you to be comfortable handling the Word of God and so one of the things we've done is um, have given you questions, questions to work through. And we have tried to do what we can to say, let's, let's bang out these, these questions. Like, and uh, Hooks, you guys met too, right? Did you guys go over this text? Okay, well, good. All right. So even one of the things that's been profitable about this is I've had discussions with people afterwards and they say, yep, Steve, yep, you, you got that one right. That was, that was really good. And uh, so I'm glad that I, I'm always the one where I get it right or wrong, depending upon what happened at your small groups. That's good. But it's been very profitable. We've got five questions, right? Who, who can tell me the questions? The first question is what? What's the question? first question, Nathan? Huh? What is the big idea, right? I mean, that's, what's, what's the, what's the you, you read this text, you say, okay, what's, what's the main thought of what's being talked about? Just the dialogue there helps you to really think through what the author's point is, say it in a different way, say it in a real short way. That's very helpful. Okay, what's the second question? Who can tell me the second question? Yeah, Andy, what's the second question? How do the original hearers hear it? See, and, and the idea behind this question is that the, the Bible wasn't newsflash, it wasn't written to you. Okay? It was written for you, but it was not written to you. Like the book of Philippians was written to the Philippians, and we get to like hear in and listen to what was being said, and it does have application to us. But first, if you're going to figure out what it means for us, we need first to remember what it meant for them. All right, what's the third question? Where's Christ? All the Bible speaks of Jesus. Jesus is the big idea of the Bible. His redemption of mankind. Jesus said, 
You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about Me. And he's talking about the Old Testament. And, and the, these writers, the, the, uh, the, the Pharisees, were so interested in just the, the minutia of everything, they missed the big picture. The big picture of Christ. The, the Scriptures of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, spoke of Him. And of course, the New Testament then explains Him after the cross. And we just want to make sure that in our study of the Bible, we never miss the big picture of the Bible. The, there are many people who do that, who get so interested in specific details that they miss the whole theme of redemption, which is the whole overarching umbrella of, um, uh, of, of the Scriptures. Now, in Philippians, we've been studying that. It's pretty easy because Jesus is every place. But when you get to the Old Testament, it becomes more difficult and more important to ask that question. Okay, fourth question. Who can tell me the fourth question? Anybody? The surprises. Right, thanks, Judy. Uh, surprise. What surprises are in the text? In fact, this is my favorite question of all of these because it's here where you really push your own understanding of the Bible because all of us have this certain theology that we think or we come to the text with some kind of approach that we think is right. And if you pay attention, there'll be a lot of times where the Bible kind of like, oh, why do you say that? Or, oh, why do you put that here? Or why do you say it this way? Or, and it, it begins to rub you and continues to challenge you to make sure that your whole mind is always uh, aligned with Scripture and the Bible rather than our own preconceived ideas. Okay, last question is application. Thank you, Andrew. How can we apply it today? I and mean, this is where the rubber meets the road, right? We don't want to be those who are ivory tower theologians at Rock Valley Bible Church, merely critics of the Bible, looking at it mere literature. No, we want to take it and realize that it is written for us and that God wants us to apply in some ways. Now, sometimes that may be a direct action, Sometimes it may be applying just to, to think rightly about some things. Maybe it has other sorts of application, but we are humble followers of Christ who want to follow Him. And those are the five questions. I really encourage you to burn those things into your mind. Real simple. We've been trying to do that. Well, last Sunday when our small group met, we asked these five questions, right? What's the big idea? How the original hearers hear it? Where's Christ? What are the surprises? And how to apply it? And we found the first question to be very difficult to answer from our text this morning. Because our text, Philippians chapter 4, 1 through 3, if you haven't turned there, I invite you to open your Bibles there. It, really, it doesn't really have a big idea. It really has two ideas. The first comes in verse 1, and the next one comes in verses 2 and 3. And in fact, you might be able to see that in your Bible. In fact, most Bible translations, modern Bible translations, have a paragraph break between 1 and 2, meaning that, that verse 1 probably was summing up chapter 3 and verses 2 and following is, is starting a new idea. Um, now you need to know this also, that sometimes if, if you choose your text wrong a little bit, it, 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 and if you're talking about two different things, you might, you might have two themes because it's talking about one thing here, one thing here. You don't always need to say, okay, what's the big idea of this? Because there might be a couple or you might span something where there are three different topics being talked about. Um, that's okay. And, and generally when I preach, I try to divide things up into logical sequences. So we have one, one big idea. Maybe I goofed this week, but not really, because last week verses 20 and 21 were so rich, I didn't want to spill over into verse chapter 4. But this morning we can and kind of review all of chapter 3 as we look at that. So let me read the passage and then I want you to listen for the two big ideas. Therefore, Paul writes, My beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord my beloved. I urge you, Odia, 
and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the Gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In the first verse, we see an exhortation to everybody, all in Philippi, stand firm in the Lord. And then in verses 2 and 3, Paul applies, addresses two women, Yodia and Syntyche, who apparently were at odds with each other, and he exhorted them to live in harmony in the Lord. Stand firm and live in harmony. Those are my two points this morning. Stand firm and live in harmony. I'm just pulling them straight from the exhortation here. Let's look first. Stand firm. Verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way. And here's the verb. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now, it's interesting here that the command or the call to action here is, is like four-fifths the way through the verse. You have to weed through a lot in order to get to his application. He precedes it by words of affirmation. He says, Philippians, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, you're my joy, you're my crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord. This is nothing new for the Apostle Paul here in Philippians. Throughout the entire epistle, he has put forth his affection towards those in Philippi. He identifies them as brethren in chapter 1, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, about my circumstances. And three times in chapter 3, he calls them my brethren in, in verse 1 and in verse 13 and verse 17. This is a family term. So the ESV translates this brothers. They are brothers in the Lord, fellow, fellow believers. It is a sign of affection. But he goes beyond using the term merely just beloved he, brethren. He says that they are his beloved brethren. That is, his loved brethren. Or again, as the ESV says, my brothers whom I love. <clears throat> These weren't just brothers. These were loved brothers. And so affection is Paul here that he says this twice. Once at the beginning of the verse, once at the end. Therefore, my beloved brethren, and I long to see my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He just is, is pouring on to them affection of who they are. And again, this isn't the only time that this word is used in Philippians. In chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says, So then, my beloved just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And I think it's no accident that the, that the context is roughly the same in chapter 2, 12, and 13 as it is here in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul's urging the Philippians to strive for their sanctification. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? Because God's the one working in you. You need to fear and tremble that God will indeed work in you. So you work that out. And similarly in this text, we see a, another just striving for your sanctification. He says, stand firm in the Lord. It's a call to persevere in the faith. And I believe all these affectionate names and descriptions all help soften the blow to press on in the Gospel. See, Paul's not this tyrant ruling over them just saying, oh, press on or, or work it out. He's saying, no, no, listen, I'm your friend. You are loved and I love you and I'm, I'm telling you, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'm telling you, stand firm in the Lord. I, I love you. That is the best for you. Unless there be any doubt about Paul's heart for the Philippians, he, he says this, I, I long to see you. 
whom I long for. This is all over Philippians. Back in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. It's only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the Gospel you are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul's saying this, though I'm in Roman custody and, and I can't leave to see you, my feelings for you are still strong. They, they have not left me and I long to see you. And, and his longing to, to help them and to see them didn't, didn't include just even himself. He, over in chapter 2, remember he says, verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Because he's one who's going to be genuinely concerned for your welfare and not mine. He's going to take this, this dear brother who's been a, a huge help to him and say, well, I, I long for you so much, I'm going to give you my best. But he does say in chapter 2, verse 24, that I trust the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. I, I long to see you and I, I trust that I'm going to be released from this Roman prison. I'm going to come and see you. And then he says, he calls them my joy. Because they gave great joy to the Apostle Paul. And how appropriate is it for Paul to tell them this? I mean, one of the, the key words to this whole epistle, I've told you time before that sometimes Paul, people call this the epistle of joy. Or as we have picked out, right, rejoice in the Gospel. Have joy in the Gospel. Not only to yourself, but also whenever it progresses and whatever way it, it, it goes. In fact, over 16 times in four chapters is where joy is used. And he says here, this is one of those 16 times, that you are my, my joy. When he thought of them, he gave thanks to God for them. Chapter 1, verse 3. And when he prayed for them, he prayed for them with joy. Chapter 1, verse 4. And when they sent a financial gift to them, Paul was extremely grateful. He said, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Chapter 4, verse 10. Not so much because he lacked, but because he knew what it meant for them. Chapter 4, verse 17. It would bring a reward. It would profit to their account. He he rejoiced because they were giving people. Well, not only was, were they His joy, they were also His crown. And the idea here is of a victor's crown. It's a, it's a crown of, of, of honor. And as he thinks about the Philippians and the, the joy that they are to Him, he thinks also about the joy that they will be to Him. See, when Christ returns, Paul would, would receive a crown of honor based upon His work that He did in, in Philippi, the, the part that He played in, in bringing the Gospel to them and, and bringing them to faith and being the means through which they were built up and grown in the Lord. And, and Philippi wasn't the only place like that. Philippians, same thing. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 For who is our hope or joy or crown or exaltation? Thessalonians, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. There he's talking about you're the glory and joy. Even at the coming of Christ, you're especially our joy because you'll receive this crown of, of exaltation. Well, this word then of exhortation comes and it doesn't come from a cold third party. It doesn't come from some rule or standard to obtain. No, it comes from someone who has a heart, a deep heart, for the best of those in Philippi. And that right here is great, great application. Isn't this how pastors ought to be with a flock? Congregations are meant to be loved and cared for and shepherded and guided, not, not led by some dispassionate leaders, but those who genuinely know them and genuinely love them and want the best for them. And furthermore, the congregation also knows that their best is in mind. And sadly, this isn't always the case. I, I have 
seen and spoken to and observed pastors who have little relationship with their congregations. Rather than loving leaders, they are paid ministers. They are paid to perform the ceremonies of the church. They are around to run the church functions, but really have little relationship with their people apart from this professional relationship because I'm the pastor and you're the people and this is my job and this is why I'm in it. That's not Paul's view of spiritual leadership. He was fully invested in the Philippians. He loved them, served them, found his joy in them. And I just say, my heart is this. To be like the Apostle Paul. I want to do life with you. I don't want to be a professional pastor. Paid to run the church. I want to be with you. I want to love you. I want to call you my beloved brethren. I want to be... I want to call you my joy in and crown. I want your joys to be my, my joys. I want your sorrows to be my sorrows. And I want my joys to be your joys. I want my sorrows to be your sorrows. That's how it works as we humbly look after each other's interests, not those of um, our own selves. And so I exhort you to stand firm. Stand firm. Well, you say, well, what does that mean? Well, we have a few hints here in, in the Gospel, in the Epistle of Philippians. I don't think it's really hard, but chapter 1, verse 17, Paul uses the same word. Look at the context there. Chapter 1, verse 17. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, so whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are, here it is, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This verse, it means that Philippians are to remain firm and steadfast in the Gospel. That's what verse 27 is talking about. Conduct yourselves worthy of the Gospel, right? Live lives consistent with the Gospel. Live in light of God's grace upon you. Live in light of Christ's sacrifice for you on on your behalf. Live in light of your faith in Him. So stand firm. And and one way that chapter 1, verse 27 is talking about is, is working itself out in unity. Stand firm in one spirit. Right? It's talking about a whole church having a, a unified spirit together. And the whole church having one mind. right? Just, just one thing, one group all together. And that we're striving together for the faith of the Gospel. Right? We're, not, we're not fractured. We're not dis- thinking different things and going different ways. Right? But, but we're all on target and on our mission. And what we want to do, we want to see Christ exalted. We want to enjoy the grace of God and extend His glory. That's part of standing firm. And unity is consistent with the Gospel. Like-mindedness is consistent with the Gospel. Working together is consistent with the Gospel. And all of that comes together with the idea of you are standing firm. Now, I trust one of the things you noticed was that standing firm here is very active. It's very active. A life consistent with the Gospel will be busy We'll serve the Lord. We'll serve other people. We'll worship Him. We'll make active choices in your life to, to, to do things God-oriented rather than doing things self-oriented. It just, just saturates all of your life. And unity in the body takes work. Like-mindedness requires communication. Working together means that each of us are doing our own part. And so the idea of standing firm doesn't mean that, okay, we're standing firm. We have, we have staked our doctrinal pillars in the ground and and we are the king of the hill and we're 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 not letting anyone shake us we're here that's not what standing firm standing firm means you're you're out and about and living consistent worthy of the gospel it's very it's very active in fact i, I would i would even say that it it means that we are um, 
um, going at it passionately. That's why I tried the idea of my title message this morning, Tenacity and Harmony. Just trying to get this standing firm, this, this fighting kind of mentality. This We're really going to take hold of this gospel. We're really going to take it forth. And So I say, what exactly does it mean here in chapter 4, verse 1? I think it, in many ways, means the, the same thing. But the best, look, look, look the context here, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul begins the verse with a therefore, and that just directs us back always. Okay, so it means in light of what chapter 3 is saying, stand firm. Here's some implications. In light of what's said, the, the, the command comes to stand firm. And if you look closely, even there's another clue. He says, um, Therefore, my beloved brother, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Well, you say, what way? Well, some people will take this in this way and refer to the rest of chapter 4. And so then make chapter 4 like the beginning of the paragraph. And, and that's okay. It's possible. But a little bit of it's made difficult because of the change in, um, in person. Chapter 4, verse 1 is talking about everybody. And then all of a sudden, he hones in on these two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche. You would expect if he's going to say, okay, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. Okay, do all these things. Like if 2 and 3 weren't there, but you just start in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Well, maybe that would point forward a little bit more. I think it points back. But yet, yeah, still is a transition verse because there are, it picks up this whole unity thing of chapter 1, verse 27. It, it's all there. So what does it mean to stand firm? Well, let's go back in chapter 3. We saw last week. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. If it does refer back, I think it certainly, whether it does or not, it certainly applies that we are to be setting our minds on heavenly things because our home is heaven, our hope is Christ. How are you doing? Are you standing firm in those things? Are you setting your mind on things above? It's easy, see, because we got things upon earth and we got to, no, 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 we got to be steadfast. We got to fight. We got to be movable. We got to be setting our minds on the things in heaven because that's where our home is and that's where our hope where Christ can come back and transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Standing firm means really trusting your hopes in heaven. Well, but, but Paul may have been referring back further than that because. 20 and 21 really doesn't have a command. The, the first command going back occurs in uh, verse 17. Remember two weeks ago I preached from there and I said, who are you following? Are you following the example of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and other godly people perhaps that you know? Or are you following the ways of the world? Those people who it says in uh, 19 are setting their minds on earthly things. Maybe you're following after bad examples, right? Sinners who are enticing you. Maybe you're following your, your pop music stars or your athletes who, who are, are talented for sure, but their lives are a wreck and hardly Christ-like. But standing firm means, verse 17, that you're, you're following the example of the Apostle Paul. Paul's reference here may even go back further. In fact, maybe it encompasses all of chapter 3, which, which deals with the Gospel. All right, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. Standing firm means rejoicing in the Lord. Whether it goes back or forward. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoicing in the Gospel. Rejoicing in the Lord. Standing firm means that we are aware of the evil workers and the evildoers and the false teachers. Chapter verse 2. Standing firm means that we, here it is, here's the Gospel, right? That we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. 
And you got to work really hard to do those things. You just stand glorying in Christ and, and, and stand not trusting your own righteousness, but His righteousness. In that fact, that's what much of chapter 3 is about. Is that standing before God, it's not, it's not our works of righteousness, but all those are lost, he says, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says He suffered the loss of all things. Verse 8. In light of knowing Christ. Again, it's putting our, our mind on heaven, our, our hope on Christ. And we've got to stand firm there because we can easily build ourselves up thinking that we're so righteous. And The key though is, verse 9, that I may found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Are you standing firm in that Gospel call? Are you standing firm, right? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Him there who made an end to all my sin. That's how you apply verse 9. It's standing firm. It's saying, no, no, no. I'm actively seeking Christ and looking to Him rather than the, the guilt that would come to me because I believe and trust in the righteousness that is not my own. But, but I don't just sit back and relax. He says no. He pursues the prize. He's, he's pursuing. Chapter... 3 verse 14, 13, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal. That's what it means to stand firm. It means to, to press on towards the goal of Christ. My, my question, are you tenaciously holding on to these things? Are, are, you, are you walking in that way? Are, are you standing firm in what the Gospel says and living appropriately? That's the first big idea. We need to be a body of people who stand firm. <clears throat> Second point. We need to live in harmony. It's verses 2 and 3. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, your companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the Gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So getting back to these five questions. Right? What's the big idea? How the original hearers hear it? Where's Christ? Where are the surprises? And uh, how do we apply it? The one that really opens up this text is question number two. How would the original hearers hear it? They would have heard it the first time when it was read publicly to the whole church body. It's not like uh, Paul sent an email he got it, he just forwarded it off. Everybody could have read it in the privacy of their own home. No, they didn't have much by way of printing or writing. They'd have to write the whole thing out for everyone to get a copy of that. But probably when it came, the whole church assembled Sunday morning and someone got up and read the book of Philippians. Now, you seeing what I'm getting at here? Can you imagine the reaction of the people when verse 2 was read? How would the original hearers hear it? I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Alright, to catch, to catch how this is going, okay? Let's, I, I just want to pick two ladies at random, okay? I, I just come, Nancy could be Nancy or it could be Nancy. So that, that sounds good, okay? Or Michelle could be Michelle Spates. I'm not sure she's here today, but pretend she is. Michelle Spates or Michelle Hook or Michelle Irwin, okay? So I'll use Nancy and Michelle, okay? So <clears throat> I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> You see, Paul wrote this from a prison cell and he sent the letter, right? Isn't it easy to send out flailing emails that you don't have to worry about afterwards? But when you're actually 
reading it and saying it's a totally different, totally different ballgame. Okay, so <clears throat> I urge Nancy and I urge Michelle to live in harmony in the Lord. Now imagine if those were just two people rather than groups. If that was your name being read, Nancy, maybe a little red in the face, both of your Nancy's kind of like, whoa, whoa. Paul knows, and not only does he know, but he's, he's, he's putting his finger on the issue. Or the Michelle's who are here, he's putting the finger on the issue. Live in harmony in the Lord. Now, unlike our Nancy's and Michelle's here this morning, my guess is that, that this, this quarrel between these ladies was, was well known. Maybe they weren't speaking with each other. Maybe they were leading factions in the church. We don't know. Maybe they even had some few, few public arguments. We don't know. But, but here's what we do. We do know enough that Paul, hundreds of miles away, heard about what was going on. You say, well, how, how, did, how did he know? How did he know? Children, how did he know, do you think? What do you think? I don't know if you know, way back there. How does he know, Nathan? Epaphroditus. That's the only source of information he's got back there. He's just got Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus is probably saying, well, Paul's saying, how's the church doing? He says, okay, it's going good. And Paul's just digging in, bringing it out. Well, how, how's this going? How's this going? Well, there is this <coughs> Yodian and Syntyche, you know them. Yeah, Paul is side of them. Well, they're having this little spat. Oh, really? Tell me about it. And Epaphroditus probably... He knew public information. He saw, well, here's what I observed. And things aren't, aren't going well. And um, it was public enough for him to know about it. Public enough to, for Paul to bring it to light. What, a, what an awkward situation. shows you how, how Philippi wasn't such a perfect, ideal church. But now maybe we realize why Paul made such a call in chapter 1, verse 27 about standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the Gospel. Maybe now we see why in chapter 2, verse 2, he's saying, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintain the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Because maybe there are some factions and some disunity, some, some fissures in the... Is that a word? Fissures, right? Splits, cracks in the congregation. It is interesting, the same word here in chapter 2, verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind is the same word that comes here in chapter 4, verse 2. He, literally, he's saying, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. In fact, some translations say that. The NIV and the King James and the New King James. Now, it's not that Paul was telling them to think the same way on, on everything. Right? Send their children to the same schools or read the same books or vote the same way in their next election as if we are, are clones. No, he's not, he's not telling them that. But he's saying that in the Lord, when it comes to matters of, of, of being right with the Lord, when it matters, comes to matters of faith and love and belief, believe the same things and love the same way. Even that could come back to the Gospel itself. Right? Remember that both of you are sinners. Remember that, that Christ died for your sins. Even as we went over in prayer meeting this morning, just to... Christ died for our sins even when we were helpless and we were sinners and we were enemies with God. That's when Christ gave Himself for us. So remember back to the Gospel what everything that Christ is for you. Remember how He extended forgiveness to you when you weren't worthy. And have that mind towards each other. 
And note how strong Paul is on the appeal. He says, I urge you, Yodia, and I urge you, Syntyche. Using the same verb twice for emphasis. The verbs translated lots of different ways. I urge you, I entreat you, beseech you, implore you, plead with you. I, I, I do those things. Yudia, I'm pleading. And, and Syntyche, I'm doing the same thing. I'm, I'm urging you, entreating you, beseeching you, imploring you, pleading in you to live in harmony with your sister. He didn't play favorites. He didn't just say one is the problem. Both of them are the problem. In so doing, Paul placed the responsibility on each of them to seek unity with each other. And how easy it for those who are fighting, right, simply to wait. Well, I'll wait till they come to me. Well, I'll, I'll wait. And how many fights and quarrels have extended over years because people are just waiting? I'll wait for him to come to me. Right? There's one conversation, well, I'd like to reconcile, but I'm just waiting for him to come to me. Well, I'm willing to reconcile. I'm just waiting for him to come to me. Well, I'm willing to reconcile, but I'm just waiting for him to come to me. What's the problem? They're not, they're not going. <clears throat> and I would say, each of them need to make the first move. But in order to make the first move, there must be humility because nobody takes the first move without humility because when this has been your stance, well... I want to be reconciled, but I'll, I'll wait for him to come to me. It takes great humility to say, okay, I will, I will go to her or I will go to him. Even in marriages, it takes humility that way. It's only the humble person who makes the first move. And isn't that the point of chapter 2? Remember we're going through there? It was all hum- unity through humility. Chapter 2, verse 2, talked about the unity And look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And for these women to live in harmony with each other, they needed to live in humility with each other. They needed to regard each other as more important than themselves. So Yodi over here needed to say, well, you know what? Syntyche is more important than I am. And I need to go to Syntyche. And Syntyche over here needs to say, Euodia is more important than I am. I need to, to go to her. But rather than being selfless, they were selfish. In fact, that's how all fights start. When you're selfish. Children, especially you can understand this for your brothers and sisters. And adults, you can watch and see how it's always the the selfish grab for the toy that's causing the fight. But realize that any fight that you have is always over something selfish as well. Something that you want that you can't get. So you fight to get it. That's exactly what James says. James 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have. So you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You want something. You can't get it. So you fight and quarrel or you raise your voice anger comes about because you're you want something you're not getting it so you try to push yourself and get angry and if i stir those around me maybe then they'll give me my way it's a way of fighting well certainly something there was going on in the lives of these two women 
something they wanted they weren't getting and so they're fighting with each other. And Paul says, in humility, make the first move. Now, I find it interesting here also that Paul didn't just leave these women alone. Okay, just live in harmony. I'll just leave you by yourself. Because oftentimes, we need help. He mentions another man in verse 3. He's identified here with the translation, true companion. Indeed, true companion. I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the Gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This man is identified as a true companion. The, the Greek word is suzuke. Su meaning soon with. Zuke meaning yoke or maybe a yoke fellow. Your common yoke fellow with me is what Paul is saying. Now, we have no idea who this man was. Guesses are all speculative at best, but we can say, was, he, um, was this his name? Some people have said that Zuzikis is his name. He, that's what they call him. Some have said that's a nickname. He just called a, a, a yoke fellow. Some have said, well, it means just like this. He's a true companion. And we have no idea who this was in Philippi, but I believe everyone in Philippi knew who this was. Who was going to help them live in harmony together. And I just say this, I, I have sympathy and compassion for true companion. I know how difficult it is to get quarreling women to live in harmony together. Um, think about like fighting cats. That's the image that comes to my mind. Guys fight different, Right? Guys will just slug each other, right? And then they'll be back and they'll be kind of best of friends, right? Black eye, okay, we're all right. Not so with women, okay? I remember the early days of Rock Valley Bible Church. I can laugh now, but I couldn't laugh back then. Yodi and Syntyche were attending Rock Valley Bible Church. And they both appeared strong in the faith. They both appeared to be godly women. They both appeared to give themselves to others. I could say the same thing that Paul did. These women have shared my struggle in the cause of the Gospel together with Clement also, the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, we don't know who Clement is either, but these were women who, who were, were making efforts to stand firm in their faith. Making efforts to, to follow after Christ. And at first, I was totally oblivious to their, their quarrel. Neither one of them, by the way, are, are still here at Rock. They're not in this room. All right, just in case you're trying to figure out who, who, who was that. And this is a long time ago, okay? At first, totally oblivious to their quarrel. And then one Sunday morning, I remember, I remember where I was at Rockford Christian High School where we met. There was the counter right along here, and I kind of was standing here. And, and this older woman came up to me, and she said, um, um, do you happen to know that there's a little strife between these two women? And I said, mm, I didn't know that. And so I said, I will look out for that. And over the next couple of weeks, I began looking out. And, and they never were talking to each other. And they just kind of avoided each other. And I was like, hmm, something's, something's not, not right there. And so as I, as I saw that, I began to inquire, being true companion as I, as I sought to be. I uh, sought to find out, what, what was this quarrel about? and seeking to do what I could do to reconcile these two women together. And I remember talking with them. 
And I remember talking to them together. I remember talking with them individually. I remember talking with their husbands. I remember talking with their husbands and their wives all together. I remember one time we had a, a big group meeting. Probably about eight of us were in this room trying to reconcile these things. Happening out. We had meetings. We had prayers. was fasting and praying and trying to get this reconciled. And now I know why Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Because peacemaking is a hard, hard task. It takes diligence and prayer. and It's really an impossible task, if you think about it. Because I can't change the minds of other people. Try as I might, pray as I might, it's the Lord who will change the hearts and their minds. I can't force humility in the hearts. I can only appeal with reason and bring them to Scripture. I, I am thankful for those who have come to my life to help me with people I've had quarrels and conflicts with. But ultimately, I know it's, it's, it's up to me to humble myself to seek, to seek unity there. Well, sadly, these two women, my attempts in the early days didn't go so well. Something had to give. And eventually, one of these families didn't show up to church one Sunday. And we came home, and I, I, I forget how, where they left a note on our door saying, look in your mailbox or something. But in the mailbox was this big packet. Um, kind of some John MacArthur sermons that said, I wasn't following after MacArthur and... You know, big four-page, single-space letter that said of all the reasons why they're leaving and what a terrible pastor I am and how bad, how unbiblical things are happening at Rock Valley Bible Church and da-da-da-da-da-da. I'm like, okay. Thanks for showing love, I guess, is what my, my first thought was. But they, they left. And um, I have a little story I want to read for you at, at this point by uh, Douglas Wilson because he, he knows how hard this is. His dad was a pastor. He's... It was pastored for many, 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 many years. This is just like a, a historical fictional account that kind of gets you into what was happening at Philippi. It starts off at the head of the page, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I also urge you, true companion, to help these women who have labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And the story picks up, true companion is going gonna, is gonna to give his perspective of the story. True companion. I muttered to myself on the doorstep, this quarrel has lasted over a year. How could Paul just ask me to fix it like this? And not in private letter either. The entire church knew. When the letter was read to the saints, both the women had been there. I hadn't been able to see Syntyche's face, but my wife had seen her shoulders stiffen at the words. And Yodia had left the assembly in tears, and I rubbed my face miserably as a slave answered the door and ushered me in. And as I waited in the atrium, I resumed my prayers, and after a few moments, I was escorted directly back into the peristylium where I saw Syntyche reclining on the couch partway down the left colonnade, and I walked slowly until I stood before her. She was a very great lady indeed, her husband dead for three years now, and here he's, he's embellishing, obviously, but it helps, but, but this is real, real person had been one of the most respected men in, the Philippi, in Philippi, and she was an extraordinary gifted woman in intelligence. Together with Lydia, she was responsible for her husband's conversion and the successful establishment of the church here. I looked behind Syntyche and smiled to myself when I saw just off the walkway the empty chapel, now a small prayer room. What a commotion it caused in Philippi when her husband had followed her in the way and had removed and burned all of the household gods. Still, it was a profitable commotion. It had been the instrument of Yodia's conversion. Yodia was married to a gruff old centurion, settled here by the emperor after his service in the wars, 
He was still a pagan, although a number of the saints had hoped for him. His last remaining excuse really was a breach between his wife and Syntyche. And Syntyche looked up and received me kindly. How may I serve you, Marcus? I took a deep breath and said, I need to speak to you about what happened on the Lord's Day. The letter? She looked down. Yes. Paul doesn't know any of the details. She trailed off miserably. Well, obviously Paul thought that he didn't need to know any of the details. Tremendous pastoral wisdom there, by the way. She looked up with very piercing and aristocratic look and said, And how has this become your business? Well, I'm afraid I'm the true companion upon whom Paul placed the task of helping you. I see. I was wondering about that. She smiled briefly. What does true companion mean anyway? Well, it's a joke from our time together in Antioch. There was a quarrel in Paul's company that I was a part of and everyone was reconciled after two days, but I got the nickname for my troubles. And she sat silently for a moment. And how do you intend to help? And I breathed deeply, prayed like Nehemiah had prayed, and answered, Clement asked Yodia to come here after I had a chance to speak with you. She will be here shortly, and I have come to ask you to receive her and restore your friendship. Syntyche looked at him shortly. Yodia is willing to come here? She's been willing now for six months. The letter simply made it necessary for her to do so now. Syntyche bowed her head in thought, and after a few moments, she looked up again. She will be admitted, and I will listen to what you have to say to both of us. At that moment, as a summoned a slave behind Syntyche, bowed and whispered something to her, and Syntyche, her face slightly flushed, nodded, and the slave disappeared. I was praying furiously. I did not know who had been more in the wrong, and Paul had not asked me to sort that out. The apostle had required reconciliation on quite different footing than some determination of blame. This was not a trial before the elders. It was a restoration of a friendship. Pray for the words, I thought. A few moments passed and the slavery appeared, escorting a small woman with very pleasant features. She stopped a few feet away and the women quietly greeted each other. Syntyche nodded at me. Well, we're listening. And I spoke carefully. I said, We have been taught that the secret things belong to the Lord and that the things revealed belong to us. One of the secret things closed to us has been the contents of the book of life. We have been given no list of names, but now in a letter from the Apostle, we have at least three names on that book. One belongs to Clement. I paused. And the other two names belong to women who were friends once, once, and the last day will be friends again. And with that, I turned and walked slowly away. Doug Wilson has a lot of pastoral wisdom. And I think sometimes in, in trying to resolve these quarrels, sometimes it's just best to get the two together. Paul said, according to Douglas Wilson, true companion just left. said, okay, you guys deal with it. I'm not sure that's the best or not, but sometimes that's as good as anything else because God is the one who restores those things. Well, getting back to my story, Yodi and Syntyche. Um, Syntyche laughed. And then pretty soon, I noticed that Yodia was having a quarrel with Priscilla. I thought, oh, that's good. <laughs> and then I noticed Yodia was having a quarrel with Eunice. And then I noticed Yodia was having a quarrel with Lois and with Phoebe. I was watching. Pretty soon, Yodia had a conflict with Apollos. 
At that point, I stepped in and tried to reconcile things with uh, Yodia and Apollos. And again, it was difficult. Multiple meetings, phone calls, talks in my home, in their home, just trying to reconcile things. But things really came to a head when Yodia had a, a problem with Stephanos. That was supposed to be a place for a laugh, right? Stephanos is like Steve, okay? Yodia had a problem with Stephanos. And um, soon afterwards, their family left the church in anger, causing tears as they left. And there was peace at Rock Valley Bible Church. Sadly, this is how it often happens in our day, is that uh, with so many churches in town, people have some kind of conflict that comes up, escalates, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And rather than seeking in humility to work that out, they'll just head off to greener pastures in another church. And often the process will repeat itself, right? They start having conflicts there, disagreements there, and problems there. And rather than working things out, they'll just pick up and go to another church. Problems figure out there, and then they pick the same problems. It's amazing that they discern these same problems in every church because there are the same problems in every church. But oftentimes the problem is with the one going. I, I remember hearing an illustration um, some years ago. I don't know the source of this. I've looked for it. But in this region, there were these two cities, two small villages. One, one was Brownsville and one was Burnsville. And there was a farmer who, who farmed the plot of land right between, between these two cities. And um, there, there was one day when... Um, People from Brownsville were traveling and moving to Burnsville. And as they're traveling along this road, and it was some miles distance from them, but as they're traveling along this road, uh, they asked this farmer, Hey, hey, um, do you know anything about Burnsville? These people from Brownsville, do you know anything about Burnsville? And they said, Well, tell me about how are the people in Brownsville? What would you find that? And, and they said, Well, we are so sad to leave. Because we just love the people in Brownsville. And they were, they were so welcoming. They were always helpful. If, if I'd go over to my neighbors and ask for something, they, they, they would give me a chicken if I needed something or some extra wheat or some, some bread or some eggs. Always, I could entrust my children to them if I had some errand. The schools there were wonderful. The teachers. We just, we just loved Brownsville. And so the farmer wisely said, I think you'll find people in Burnsville to be about the same. And they carried on their way. And a bit later, maybe the next day, a few days later, some folks came from Brownsville, Burnsville, and they were going to Brownsville. And they got their wagon all packed, and they were moving. And they came along, and they, ha- they happened to ask the same question to the same farmer who was there beside the road. And he said, well, well tell me, do you, do you know anything about Brownsville? He said, are you from Burnsville? He said, yes. I said, well, well tell me, what, what are the people in, in Burnsville like? He said, oh, we are so glad to get out of that place. And the people there are unfriendly. They keep to themselves. In fact, hardly anyone speaks to each other there. They're just all caught up in their own, their own thing. The schools are terrible. The teachers have this thing against our kids. They don't like our kids. They're not, I'm, it's, it's a dirty place. There's garbage all over the place. We, we, we don't like it there. He says, well, I think you'll find Brownsville to be about the same. And the idea in our, our church and age is that 
there can be a lot of Yodias, a lot of Syntyches, and if you don't resolve the conflict with, with one, you, you'll find someone else to have conflict with until you deal with the problem yourself in terms of humility and seeking, committing to work things out with other people. And I look back and see how I've dealt with the, this woman particularly and played the part of true companion, praying and counseling and seeking scriptures. And, and it didn't end well. We don't know how it ended well, while it ended with Yodia and Syntyche. We don't have second Philippians. I kind of wish we did. But they didn't have the option of going to a second church because in Philippi, it was a church in Philippi or you can leave that there's no church to leave to. Right? Like Phil Gusky likes to tell the story about the, uh, the man on a marooned island. And he had three huts, three huts built, built there. Right? Maybe you've heard this. And the, and, the, and the ship came to rescue them. And like, why are there three huts? And he was explaining. He says, well, this is this first hut. This is, this is my house. And the second hut, that's my church. And the, the, the third hut, that's the church I used to go to. So... In church, there's Philippi, one church. And like, like all churches, there are many good things happening at Philippi. You just look at Paul spreading out his heart for them. Lots of good things happening. Some difficult things. I'd say we at Rock Valley Bible Church are the same. A lot of good things happening at Rock Valley Bible Church. Some difficult things to be sure. And I just exhort you to, to live in harmony with one another. And, and though this verse is here speaking about Question number two, how did the original hearers hear it? They heard about Yodi and Syntyche and these, these feuding women. How does it apply to us? It applies to anybody who would find themselves in a feud. I just encourage you to find what, what Paul said here. The key is seek unity through humility. And may the Lord grant peace among us. Well, that is a, a good transition to the Lord's Supper, which we will... Celebrate again this morning, here this Lenten season. We'll celebrate again a Good Friday service, and then Easter we, we won't because we'll celebrate the, the resurrection of Christ. But it is interesting, here in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul teaches about the Lord's Supper, one of the big problems in the church was disunity. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, and in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. He says, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one of you takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? He says, in this I will not praise you. They're, they're selfishly seeking their own deal rather than waiting, rather than giving preference to others. And that, that is the context of the Lord's Supper. It is to be a unifying thing that we all eat together, reflecting upon the cross of Christ and reflecting upon Christ and the Gospel and rejoicing in the Gospel of what everything that Christ has done us. So let's bow our heads. I just want you to examine your own hearts. Maybe there's conflicts here that you're unresolved, that you need to resolve. I just would encourage you to seek the Lord to resolve those whatever way you can. Be a, be a Yodia and go to Syntyche this week.
Maybe it even stop you from celebrating the supper this morning. I just encourage you, though, to place your hope and trust in Christ. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in our great bringing people together, reconciliation. We can't do that. But God, through Christ, has reconciled us to Himself and thus has given us the power of reconciliation towards each other. As the Scripture says, as long as it depends upon you, be at peace with one another. In the integrity of your heart, you say, I've done everything I can. Lord, I want peace. I don't know what more to do. That's wonderful. That's the heart we need to have when we celebrate this supper. So examine your heart. Just confess any known sin that you have. Realize that upon the cross, Christ Jesus came, was crucified for our sins. They might take them and wipe them away. And what a joyous thing really this is that we get to celebrate the supper together. Because it's here where we unitedly all confess that our hope is not in we're doing. Our hope is in Jesus. His body poured out for us. His blood shed for us. That's what this means. We hope and trust in Him. And so, Father, I pray You'd be with us, commune with us. May we worship You now in this special time. As we think of and anticipate next Sunday morning, Easter morning, the time of the year we celebrate the resurrection from the dead. May this give us joy until that day. In Jesus' name, Amen.